Among the signers of the declaration representing the New Jersey delegation was a pop musician, and among the fans of his music, the soon-to-be first president, George Washington. Francis Hopkinson, this sometimes musician, is best known for his role as an ardent patriot during the American Revolution, a well-respected lawyer and judge. He was a serious guy, New Jersey Provincial Assemblyman, when the colony became a state, he was elected a delegate to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. But on the side, he was also a novelist and a pop musician writing popular songs. Now, what did you write these songs for in these days? For guitar? No, your axe was the harpsichord. Hopkinson became an American master of that instrument, which he had learned at age 17. He often joined music assemblies and gave concerts. When he was 33, he became harpsichord teacher as organist of Christ Church in Philadelphia, a pretty big musical gig in the colonies. In 1778, Hopkinson wrote the words and music for The Toast, honoring America's commander-in-chief. The lyrics of the song appeared in the Pennsylvania Gazette on April 4, 1778, to great acclaim. Hopkinson wrote the song while the British held Philadelphia, and it was a big morale booster. And it went like this. "'Tis Washington's health, fill a bumper all around, for he is our glory and pride. There cannot be found, search all the world o'er, his equal in virtue and fame." I am not a musician like Hopkinson, and so apologies for the singing, but that's how it went. Washington heaped praise on Hopkinson's songs. I can neither sing one of the songs nor raise a single note on any instrument to convince the unbeliever, he said, but I have. However, one argument, which will prevail with persons of true taste, I can tell them that any given song is the production of Mr. Hopkinson. At age 21, Hopkinson wrote what is his first popular song, My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free based on another work by Thomas Parnell, Love and Innocence. Later, he tilted his music towards politics. He composed songs such as The Treaty, Battle of the Kegs, The New Roof, A Song for Federal Mechanics, which was a musical way of supporting the new Constitution after independence was won and we had been under Confederation for a few years. He wrote a bunch of pamphlets and satirical writings, always supporting the independence cause. John Adams thought Hopkinson was funny-looking, but fun. He told Abigail, He's one of your pretty little curious ingenious men. I have not met anything in natural history more amusing and entertaining than his personal appearance. Yet he is genteel and well-bred and is very social. For his musical advocacy of independence and his signature, he met the fate that many did. His house in Bordentown, New Jersey, was especially targeted when the Hessians came to town. The German mercenaries plundered the house, though his family was able to escape in time, and he as well. Like others, his library was stolen. But there is an interesting story. One of the Hessians who plundered one of the books moved to Philadelphia when the British captured that city. And when they evacuated, there was a note from one of these thieves in German that essentially said, Hopkinson may have been a rebel, but he had a great library and was no doubt a learned man. One work of satire that he wrote two years before the signing helped to build support across the colonies for the cause. It was called A Pretty Story, but it wasn't. It was an allegory that related directly to the situation in the colonies. 
Once upon a time, he said, a great while ago, there lived a certain nobleman who had long possessed a very valuable farm and had a great number of children and grandchildren. Besides the annual profits from his land, which were considerable, he kept a large shop of goods, and being very successful in trade, he became, in process of time, exceedingly rich and powerful, insomuch that all his neighbors feared and respected him. Here, I suppose, it's not hard to imagine that this nobleman is King George, or one of the King Georges. That nobleman, possessing a valuable farm, permits some of his children to settle on his new farm a little bit farther away, with the provision that they must purchase from his shop all of their merchandise, although they may make some of their own laws. In process of time, however, some of his children, more stout and enterprising than the rest, requested leave of their father to go and settle on the distant, very distant tract of land. Here we can imagine this is America. Leave was readily obtained, but before they set out, certain agreements were stipulated between them. The principal were, the old nobleman, on his part, engaged to protect and defend the adventurers in their new settlements, to assist them in chasing away the wild beasts there, and to extend to them all the benefits of the government under which they were born, assuring them that although they should be removed so far from the nobleman's presence, they should nevertheless be considered as children of his family and treated accordingly. Well, it's not hard to imagine that Americans are those children. In return for these favors, Hopkinson wrote, he insisted that they on their part should at all times acknowledge the nobleman to be their father, that they should not deal or trade with neighbors without his leave, but send to his shop only for such merchandise as they should want. But in order to enable them to pay for such goods as they should purchase, they were permitted to sell the produce of their lands to certain of the nobleman's neighbors. This satire reveals how important economic considerations were behind the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Obviously, those neighbors are France, Spain, Holland, and the Caribbean colonies of all those countries. As the old nobleman advanced in years, he began to neglect the affairs of his family, leaving them chiefly to the management of his steward. Now, we can imagine that the steward is Lord North, the Prime Minister. And then we get to Parliament, the wife, in the story. Now the steward, Hopkinson said, had debauched the nobleman's wife and by that means gained entire power over her. She no longer deliberated what would most benefit either the old farm or the new, but said and did whatever the steward pleased. A decree was prepared and published, ordering that the new settlers should pay a certain stipend upon particular goods which they are not allowed to purchase anywhere but their father's shop. He also orders the new settlers to pay a tax on water gruel. Well, this could be carefully disguised, not so carefully disguised, insult and allegory about the tax on tea. And it reveals what Hopkinson and others thought of British tea compared to other varieties. But one of the new settlers, whose name was Jack, either from a keener sense of injuries attempted against him or from the necessity of situation, demolished a cargo of this gruel. This Jack, of course, is John Hancock and the Boston Patriot. Vengeance follows when Jack's gate is padlocked and an overseer is sent to harass him and the family. The story then describes the rebellion and the hopes in the end expressed by 13 stars in the sky as the children are free of the evil steward's grip. Hopkinson's story, a pretty story, presents the situation well in the way even a child could understand it. But if you notice, that's the 1774 attitude. It still is easy on King George. It is blaming things on Parliament and on the Prime Minister. That would change 
at the time of the Declaration, and the Declaration itself attacks the king directly. 1774, we were still saying maybe the king is being misled. Story helped to bring about independence, and Hopkinson would sign the Declaration and serve as a member of Continental Congress and also as a chief judge of the new state of Philadelphia. 1791, when he died, his complete works were published posthumously. Hopkinson and all the pop stars of today may have owed a great deal of thanks to Samuel Huntington, another signer of the Declaration of Independence from Connecticut, because he instituted the first United States copyright law. He goes against the image that some have of the signers of the Declaration as being all of these wealthy people loaded with money, merchants and the like. Most of the signers, yes, had some wealth. Hard to imagine a state then or now picking a pauper to represent them in the assembly. But they didn't always have that wealth during their lifetimes. Huntington, for instance, had no public education. Some of his brothers did, but there was no time for Samuel. He was the eldest son, and his father needed help on the farm. So it was put those books away, Sam, and grab this plow. At the age of 22, he was able to finally stop working in the field and began a study of law. Couldn't pay tuition to be formally trained. He borrowed books from a respectable lawyer in a neighboring town, furnished them, and with his diligence and perseverance, he accomplished his own education. He's not the only signer to be self-trained as a lawyer in this way. We spoke of John Penn in an earlier episode, and there are others. A good set of law books was perhaps enough for law in the colonies, though some of the more established lawyers didn't like this progress. They called it pettifogging, self-taught law. Huntington, though, was no pettifogger. He used his law practice to seek elected office. He developed a thriving practice, and he used that practice to seek elected office, represented the town of Norwich in the General Assembly, became king's attorney, and then a judge in the Superior Court of Connecticut. During this time, he was a strong advocate for American rights. Strong advocate for American rights in October 1775. He was appointed by the General Assembly of Connecticut to represent that colony in Philadelphia. Samuel Huntington developed there a reputation for fairness. Both northern states and southern states, small states and large states, felt they could trust him and get a fair hearing from him. Thus, he was elected one of those forgotten 14 presidents of the United States early in our history before Washington. These POTUSes included signers Richard Henry Lee, John Hancock, Thomas McKean at different times, all presidents of the United States, and all served before Washington. But really, they weren't presidents with the kind of powers we expect from a president today or even the powers that Washington had. They had ceremonial power. As the leader and foremost member of Congress, to be sure, and they had parliamentary power as the controller of the floor, the same way a Speaker of the House would when Congress is in session, but not the kind of executive power that Washington and his successors would be invested with. Rather than POTUSes, they were POTISCAs, if you will, President of the United States in Congress assembled. Presidents of Congress, essentially, active when that Congress was in session. This is quite different from that POTUS of today who's president all the time. In that role, Benjamin Rush found Huntington to be a sensible, candid, and worthy man, and wholly free from state prejudices. After the Revolution, Huntington went back to Connecticut and served in the new state government. As a member of the state assembly, that's where he introduced a copyright law, America's First. He was made justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court and was elected lieutenant governor, then governor. 
As good old Reverend Goodridge's biography said, he had not the advantage of family patronage or the benefit of a liberal education, nor did he have hereditary wealth to lend him her aid. He rendered services to his country, which will long be remembered in gratitude. He went down to the grave, cheered with the prospect of a happy immortality. Well, Goodrich's biography was written in the early part of the 19th century. But did he really call it right? Did Huntington get that immortality? He may not be remembered. In fact, Huntington, Connecticut, founded in 1789, was renamed Shelton, Connecticut, in 1919. Though a section and local still go by the name of Huntington in many cases. Towns named for Governor Huntington remain in Pennsylvania and Indiana, and a public school in Norwich, Connecticut bears his name. So we have a pop musician and the man who created the copyright laws that would ensure that the many homespun industries of America would include the entertainment industry. But the true pop stars, the movie stars, news anchors, talking heads, of this time, 1776, were the politicians, yes, but were really the clergy. They would be the ones with the ideas, with the smarts, with the charisma, and the passion. They could influence minds in both religious and political matters. One of the well-known clergy in 1776 would have been the Reverend John Witherspoon. In addition to being a Presbyterian minister, he was president of Princeton University. He was brought by the Princeton Board from Scotland. Several of the signers of the Declaration were among his pupils, as were the U.S. President, Vice President, Cabinet Members, Senators, Governors, Congressmen. See, in 1766, ten years before the signing, New Jersey's Princeton College was in a little bit of a pickle. They were in a bad way in terms of funds. Richard Stockton, fellow New Jersey signer, at this time was a trustee and looked for a way to boost Princeton. They sought out the well-known preacher from the bustling Scottish town of Paisley, where he enjoyed a large congregation. He had turned down offers from Rotterdam, from Dublin, as well as many other towns in Scotland who wanted them to be his preacher, wanted him to be their preacher. His family didn't want to go to America, but it was a good opportunity, and he took it. Witherspoon indeed elevated Princeton excited the fundraising operation and increased the student population. Princeton now earned students from Massachusetts to Virginia and fundraising from those places. He revamped the educational offering of Princeton, bringing in Europe's latest instructors and ideas. Despite the fact that as of a decade before the vote in Philadelphia, who was not even living in the colonies, Witherspoon soon became a convert to the American Patriot cause. Early in the year 1776, he was elected a representative to the General Congress by the people of New Jersey. He was there a few days previous to the 2nd of July and assisted in the deliberations on the question of a Declaration of Independence. For the space of seven years, Dr. Witherspoon continued to represent the people of New Jersey in the General Congress. He was seldom absent from his seat, and he never allowed personal considerations to prevent his attention to official duties, that again, according to the Reverend Goodrich's biography. He was six feet high, good proportion, well known for a fervent passion in his, at his pulpit, and for great punctuality and exactness in his devotional exercises. He still would have spoke with a Scottish burr in that hall. Memory was unusually good. 
he could repeat a sermon, a speech, verbatim, without the use of paper. Dr. Witherspoon liked nothing more than a good story. Here's one example. On the surrender of the British Army to General Gates at Saratoga, General Gates dispatched one of his aides to convey the news to the Congress in Philadelphia. Well, instead of hurrying, the general's aide proceeded at a leisurely pace. So word already reached Philadelphia three days before his arrival. It was usual on Congress, on such occasions, to bestow some mark of their esteem to the messenger who was bringing such great news. And it was proposed in this case to bring the aide an elegant sword. During the conversation on the subject, apparently, Reverend Witherspoon rose and asked to amend the motion and substitute the sword for a pair of golden spurs. 1779, Dr. Witherspoon voluntarily retired from Congress, wanted to spend the remainder of his life near Princeton. 1781, though, New Jersey again elected him as a representative to Congress, did that for two more years, then retired again. He went on to see his country independent and under a U.S. Constitution. Two physician doctors were among the several doctors signing the Declaration were from New Hampshire and deserve mention. Matthew Thornton, six feet tall, Irish-born signer, was an army surgeon in the French and Indian Wars. Thornton did not participate in the vote on independence on July 2nd. He was born in Ireland, and when he was two or three years old, his father emigrated to Massachusetts. Here he received an academic education and subsequently pursued medical studies under the direction of a famous doctor. He practiced in Londonderry in New Hampshire, became a physician, and established a medical practice there. Thornton also became a Londonderry town selectman, a representative to and president of then the Provincial Assembly of New Hampshire, and a member of the Committee of Safety, drafting New Hampshire's plan of government after that state's dissolution from the loyal government. It was the first state constitution adopted after the start of hostilities with England. During the same year, he was made Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas of the state and then raised to office of Judge of the Superior Court of New Hampshire. She remained till 1781. One of the reasons many of the signers aren't well known, and this is true of Matthew Thornton among others, is that a lot of them went back to their states and so became very important in building up their own states, but weren't, after their signing of the Declaration, national figures anymore. This is the case with Thornton. He became a you know, member of the state's course. He was involved in the municipal affairs of the town. He was a senator in the state legislature. He survived a whooping cough episode, continued to practice medicine all of his life, and he lived to the age of 89. His death in 1803 made him one of the longer-living signers. Another doctor deserves mention, and it's a name you know for a particular reason we'll get to. Josiah Bartlett from Kingston, New Hampshire. A brilliant young man with a near-photographic memory. He memorized Greek and Latin, became a medical doctor at age 16. There was a disease going around called the throat distemper, which first appeared at Kingston, New Hampshire in the spring of 1735. The first person afflicted with it was said to have contracted the disease from a hog, which he skinned and opened, and then he died of this distemper of the throat. We don't know if this is true. This disease did spread abroad through the town, and to children under 10 years of age, it proved exceedingly fatal. It was like the plague in that it brought its victims to the grave almost without warning, this throat distemper. Kind of doesn't have a name that matches the seriousness of the disease, and some are said to have expired while sitting at play, handling their toys. At this time, the practice of medicine was baffled about what it is. Every method of treatment at the time was pursued. 
In fact, this disease spread so fast that it only seemed to cease where there were no more victims for it to spread to. Well, a second wave of this disease came in 1754 in Kingston, and Dr. Bullitt was at this time a physician of the town. He first treated it as an inflammatory disease, perhaps, but at length he was satisfied that this was not it, and he administered something new that he had discovered, a type of Peruvian bark, and he administered this to a child of his own who was afflicted with the disease, with success. From this time, the use of this herbal treatment became general as a remedy of diseases of the same type. And he was able to cure the residents of this town, who were very grateful. The fame from having treated many patients in that epidemic led him to be elected judge and to join the New Hampshire Assembly in the 1760s in strict opposition to the British tax levies. The red-headed doctor was popular, and he dressed well with ruffles and silver buckles. He took his first revolutionary action, when he was the leader of the New Hampshire militia. He stole the British reserves of gunpowder. His militia rank was removed by the royal governor, but that governor would soon be out, and Josiah Bartlett would be made governor of New Hampshire as a state. He was a field surgeon of the United States during the Revolutionary War, and after that war, he served as an elder statesman in New Hampshire, supported the Constitution there, and became governor of the state, resigned when his health failed, and died 1795. Well, Josiah Bartlett is more popular than the other signers, at least not as well known as Jefferson and Franklin, but maybe he's in your second tier with your Benjamin Rush. And that is because the character played by Martin Sheen on the TV show The West Wing bears the name of this signer, as does a town in the north of New Hampshire. Anything that spreads the word about the signers is good, so thank you, Aaron Sorkin, for that gift to history education, Josiah Bartlett. And there, if you've ever wondered about who that character was named after, now you know about Dr. Bartlett. I want to thank you for listening. If you like the program, please give us a nice little comment on iTunes. That always helps. I do another program called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's on iTunes or it's available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. In the next episode, we know about the older Thomas Jefferson, the guy who became president, carried on a correspondence with John Adams. But how about the younger guy? We'll find out.